Let's just, uh, let's just jump in. It's kind of fun. So th- thinking about what we've been teaching about, I just kind of had, had a moment come to mind. And uh, last year, I took the kids to the doctor. And, and, and weirdly enough, it seems like I'm the one that gets to take the kids to the doctor when they need shots. Like, and I, you know, I'm, I'm cool to do that. But I was taking the, taking the kids to the doctors, and I mean, no, nobody likes needles, right? Nobody's excited to get a shot, especially when you're five and four years old. And so I think this day, only Gavin needed a shot, but Brooklyn was with us. And, and I remember, like, I just want to, you know, like, you, you want to protect your kids. You want to set them up for success. You don't want to lie to them and, like, try to trick them, and, you know, because then all of a sudden they're never going to trust you again. And so I, I just went the straight up route and just told Gavin. I was like, hey, buddy, we're going to the doctor today. You're going to get a shot. I mean, like, no, daddy, I don't want a shot. And I was like, Gavin, you know, buddy, let's just talk about why we get shots for a minute. And I talked him through it about how it's for his good. It keeps him well. It makes him strong. And, and, and very awesomely for a five-year-old, like, he got it. He was like, okay, daddy. We walked into the, into the, into the doctor's office and, you know, and he's just chill. We go into the patient room and you can tell he's thinking about it. And he's like, you can tell he's kind of getting his game face on. He knows what's coming. And up to this point, they had never asked us anything. They just popped him in the leg. They give him the shot. I hold him down. It's very unfun. They look at me like, I remember the first time Gavin had to get a shot at like one years old. And I'm just holding this baby down. And we make, we make eye contact. It was like the worst moment of my life. He's like, what are you doing, Daddy? As they're stabbing him in the leg. But this day, like, Dr. Chia walks in. And she's like, Gavin? Do you want it in the arm or the leg? And I just thought, man, I, I, thought, I thought we were there. Now you're going to give him a choice. And he's just going to like back out. He's like, the arm. He chooses the arm. So I was just impressed by that. Like, I don't know. For some reason, closer to the face seems worse. And, but he chose the arm. And, and she goes, she pulls his sleeve up. And Gavin's just looking. And I'm like, don't look, buddy. But he's looking. And then he looks at me. And, and like, she pops him. And he's like, his eyes just get big for a second. And then he kind of, okay, wasn't that bad. And, he, and, he, and it was just a moment of like fatherly joy and pride. Like my son, my son was tough. My, my parenting was effective. Like it, now I, I will say we've gotten a shot since then and he forgot all that. But <laughs> that moment was amazing. And, and I will just say this section of Romans that we're in is like that. Like, it is, it is difficult, and it's, and it's not something, if you've read ahead, that you're probably looking forward to. And, I'm, and I'm, if you were here last week, I commend you in coming back, because we're in this kind of mode for a while of just getting the shot. We're getting the shot. It's not fun, but it's for our good. And that's where we're at. And so I, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that you're here we're going to be in this mode for a few more weeks, maybe up until Christmas. So just keep coming back. Know that you're building up your immunity or however the metaphor goes, and it's going to be for your good. But as we've been studying through Romans for the past four weeks, I just want to review a couple of important things to make sure we're thinking rightly. First is that this is a pastoral letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. Paul's never been there, but he has been a part of, of maybe discipling, raising up leaders that have gone back to Rome, they, or, or they know of him, they know of his teaching. He's, he's been influential in Rome, 
but he's never been there, and he feels a sense of responsibility. So he's writing this letter of instruction to the church in Rome, kind of the climate he's writing into is this church, this kind of in turmoil, because they've got this culture clash of, of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians that are like saying, like, no, it should be this way, it should be that way, this is how our righteousness is expressed, this is how it is expressed, this is how it's achieved, no, this, that, and the other. So he's working to bring unity, and, he, and he's, and, he, and he's, and he cares. You can tell there's just a deep sense of care. And I, and I want to emphasize that. And especially as we come to this writing that he wrote, but as we come to the truth of God that, again, if we believe that the person talking to us, just like Gavin trusted me as his father, who up to that point had proven myself to be mostly good, mostly caring, mostly right, mostly trustworthy. See, God is not just mostly. God is completely. And so when we come to God's truth, we have to believe that it's good, that it's caring, that it's loving, and therefore to surrender to it, to, to submit to it, is the best thing we could do. And so Paul has that posture for the church in Rome. And this book of Romans, this letter is deeply theological. I mean, it is probably the most complete and extensive doctrinal treatise we can find in one place in all of Scripture. It's also deeply personal. It pierces the heart. It transforms the truth, and it transforms life. When we, when we kick this off, we asked, who in here journey to faith in Christ was greatly influenced by the, by the book of Romans. And we saw a lot of hands go up. It's personal. It pierces your life and it turns it upside down in the most wonderful ways. And so I just want to remind us of all that so that we, maybe we can kind of boost up our motivation to be courageous and take the shot because it's good. If you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans 1. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 32 today. Uh, our passages will be on the screen uh, today as well, as well as if, uh, on the YouVersion Bible app. If you, if you click on events, it'll be there. Um, it will pop up because of GPS. And there's also Bibles underneath you. And if you need a Bible, if you don't have one at all, please take that home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, but... But uh, as we continue today, just thinking about two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the central statement of all of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And that central statement is found in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which we'll read in just a minute. But we moved last week as Sammy came in and taught, he, we moved into this section following that central statement, which is about our sin and unrighteousness and God's response to that. And, and, and it's funny, like, these are hard texts to teach. I mean, like, this morning I came in and asked our circle of leaders, I was like, hey, should I, should I put it this way? Which way gives us the greatest chance of actually hearing the truth intended and not getting distracted? Because I've just been wrestling, and I had to go and tweak my sermon right before service, you know, and I'm thankful for their input. But it's difficult, but I, I can honestly say that I've been grateful and I've been excited for the chance to bring these truths before you. So, so yes, like talking about your sin, some people kind of roll their eyes, some people kind of hide, some people avoid. It's a bitter pill to swallow. It's hard to talk about sin. We don't like to. We don't like to acknowledge that we are a people in need. We don't like to acknowledge that we don't do it right all the time. We don't like to acknowledge that our intentions aren't always right, that our motives aren't always pure, that our, our ascents aren't always for the right thing. Sometimes we ascend for the wrong thing. We, we intend for the wrong thing. And so we don't like that. So it's a bitter pill to swallow. But in facing these things, it's actually, again, healthy. It's helpful. So it's no coincidence in the flow of thought as Paul writes his letter. And, and let us be reminded one more time, this is a letter to be read all at once. And so Paul is very aware of 
where he wants to take the people reading this and, and what's coming, and he's setting us up to understand and to receive. And so it's no coincidence that Paul makes this grand statement, the, the centerpiece, the hinge point of all of this letter in Romans 1.16 and 17 when it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's a way of just saying to everyone, for in it the righteousness, which is the rightness or the goodness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's from faith is that we understand through faith. Our understanding comes through placing our belief and faith in Him. And that faith then results in a strengthening of the faith that we have. So it's God is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so not only do we gain understanding through faith, and that faith results in more faith, but then we are also sustained by faith. And so God works a great work in faith. And like you see in total parenthetical, but for a moment, someone asked Jesus one time, so what is the work? What is the work to be, to be done? And he said, the work is to believe. Believe in me as the Messiah. Believe that I was sent by the Creator God. So faith is important, and it's a gift of God that God works uh, for our good end. So we must realize that our need is for great truth, and our need is great truth. And so Paul's thinking, he lays out this, this grand picture of the gospel of Jesus, the completed work in Christ for you and for me. It's the power of salvation, the power of redeeming, the power of taking that which was defiled and destroyed and restoring and renewing and redeeming and bringing in. So that's the power of the gospel for salvation. So Paul puts this out there. And he wants you to long for that. He wants you to want that. He wants you to see that it's for you. But then he transitions into 18 through 32. And it's no coincidence. Paul is confronting the lawless unrighteousness of the Gentiles here in, this, in these first few verses in 18 through 32. We'll see in chapter 2 later that Paul is confronting the law-filled self-righteousness of the Jews. So here is the lawless unrighteousness coming up in chapter 2 is the law-filled self-righteousness, but he's wanting to say, okay, so now I want you to know the power of salvation in the gospel. I want you to know the, the life that is sustained by faith. So how do we get there? Well, first we have to understand our great need and the consequence, the destruction of, of denying the reality of who God is and what his way is and what his truth is. So in, 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 in uh, chapter 1, 18 through 24, Paul tells us these things. He says, God has made himself and his way known to every person through creation and our conscience so that no one has an excuse to deny not only his existence, but also his character. So God has made himself known in a way that no one can deny that he exists and no one can deny the character of who he is, that he is good, that he created all things good and in love. And he said he also showed us that instead of acknowledging God, that they turned to idols. And this is, the, this is important. They turned to idols. They exchanged the glory of God for the worshiping of idols. It says they exchanged the glory of God to worship the creature instead of the creator. So that's where we are. That's, that's what brings us to our passage today, that God is who he is, that he created, and he works in a way to reveal himself that those he is addressing have denied him and exchanged the glory for the opportunity to worship the creature instead of the created. So they had chosen idols. They've chosen idolatry. So that's where we are. 
So let's look real quickly at Romans 1, 24 through 25 first. So it says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than than the Creator who is blessed forever. So So Paul just brings us to this to this reality, saying, okay, so you've chosen idols, therefore God gave them up. So as Sammy pointed out last week, when we see a for or a therefore, we must look at what preceded. We must ask what the therefore is there for. God gave them up. It says, therefore God gave them up. This, this is a refrain that we'll see a few more times. We'll see it three times in this passage today. So, so what is the God gave them up a result of? What's the you know, what is the therefore referring to? We find it in verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is revealed. So this entire section is connected to that statement. The wrath of God is revealed. So I think first it would be helpful for us to talk about the wrath of God for a minute, right? So what is the wrath of God? I think we too often make the mistake of thinking that we can define the character of God by looking in the mirror. We think that, okay, what's God like? And we, and we unknowingly, maybe, maybe kind of subconsciously or even consciously say, okay, well, what am I like? Well, that has to be how God is. Because when we do that, we really try to answer that question by saying, well, what's my wrath like? What we end up with is this idea that the wrath of God is some active work through great signs of might or you know, through cataclysmic events or tragedy in the person's life. And it comes when God has had enough and lost his temper. That's our wrath. There is such a thing as righteous anger, an anger that we can embody that is right by God and that, that it actually helps us and honors God. But that's not very common for us. We have a hard time with that, right? This, this sounds a lot more like what our wrath is like, that our wrath is, is very active, it's outward, it's pointed, and it comes at a point of exasperation and we just can't take it anymore. That, that, that sounds like us, but that's not, that's not the wrath of God. What we see here is that the greater wrath of God, the more common expression of the wrath of God is much more passive than that. When I say passive, I don't mean ineffective, I don't mean weak, I don't mean minimal, but I mean in the way in which it's delivered. It's not some, some moment of anger where God acts out. It's this moment where God, he, he is giving us over to the selfish, destructive, and evil desires of our own hearts and flesh. That's the wrath of God. If you're familiar with what happened in the Old Testament, this should sound familiar with you. For one example, we'll read Psalm 81, 10 through 14. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. So we hear even that in his wrath, God desires for his people to know him and to hear him and to trust him and to be restored. He's like, oh, just turn to me and I will deliver you. But sometimes for the sake of what is good, for the sake of, of God's eternal work, he will give his people over to their own desires. Does this mean God is forcing them to sin and saying he gave them over? No, it's not. Every person is as free to obey as they are to sin. 
Every person is as free to obey as they are to sin. God is not eager in his wrath. He is not, he is not haphazard in his wrath. His wrath is on those that are running headlong after sin and idolatry. Write down these verses and go back and read them later from this section. Verses 21 through 23, 25, 28, and 32. Go, go and just meditate on those later this week. God's wrath, it has a purpose. It has a direction. It has a force to achieve, and that is to remove. In his wrath, he removes his benevolent corralling of grace from our lives for the sake of revealing his goodness in the destruction of, of, dis, of refusing uh, the truth of that. Freedom is not the absence of all constraints. When we think about what we think about freedom and we think about what we want, like God's corralling is good for us and it's not, it's not this limiting thing. It's actually where freedom lies. Freedom is not the absence of constraints. Freedom is the glory of residing in the proper constraints. And in, God's, and in God's grace and in His work and His general revelation, he, he hymns us in. He protects us. I've used this illustration before, but it's too perfect not to use again in this situation. Um, I already mentioned Gavin once. I have two kids, Gavin and Brooklyn. They're six and five. Um, we have a backyard. We, one of the things we love about our house is that it's a, a house that we can just leave the back door open and our kids can run in and out of because it's fenced in, it's contained, they can't get out, people can't get in, it's safe. And so they have, if we didn't have that fence, if we didn't have that containment, they wouldn't have the freedom to come and go. They would be confined in our house, and they would ha constantly have to implore us to let them outside, and then we would have to go and accompany them. Now, how, how, how severe would it be if we didn't have that, and we just said, go outside? And our kids, they're awesome kids, and they are, I think they're way mature for their age. But left to their own devices, they will wonder, they will get themselves into danger. Their curiosity, which is awesome, will get the best of them. And if that fence wasn't there, they'd end up playing. I mean, they asked me, can I play in the street, Daddy? I'm like, and I can't. I'm like, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, don't play in the street. They want to play in the street. Like, it would just, it would be severe for me to let them out without the constraint. It would be a severe thing. And so when we think about the wrath of God, it is, it is a lot like that. It is that he would just give us to our desire for the sake of revealing his goodness. Now, sometimes it's for the redemption of that person that in the experiencing of the destruction and the emptiness, they will turn. But you can think of experiences that you've maybe observed or through the scriptures where you see that sometimes it led to their destruction, but those that observed it realized the authority and the goodness of God. So either way, it is working for God to reveal his good truth, his, his loving confinement, his way that is right. John Stott says this, says, The wrath of God then is almost totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is holy hostility to evil. You hear that? Holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. So let me read that last sentence again. On the contrary, his wrath is, is holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. 
So we see that God's wrath is motivated by love, it's motivated by truth, it's motivated by the purpose of this world for his glory. Verse 25 says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature over the created. So this whole section is about idolatry, the things that we make of the things that we make idols in our lives. It can be very literally that they formed and crafted things in the image of created things and they bowed down to them. It could also be just the things that we give authority in our lives to. God is meant to be the center of our life as well as the circumference of our life. He is meant to be what we're all about as well as what we submit to in all things. His authority is over all. We're meant to be overwhelmed and overtaken by the reality of who he is in his love and in his truth. And so the, anything that we have either placed as the center or the circumference is an idol. So this is what Paul is addressing. So do you believe that there is nothing worse than having the opportunity to worship an almighty loving God that created all things in love for his purpose, but to instead worship something that was created? That's, that's what Paul's calling us to. He's like, hey, 